Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public conversations, our deepest values, and how we might build a little bit more empathy and understanding across the very many divides in our common life. Every episode, I try and have a really meaningful conversation with someone with some kind of public voice, from academics to archbishops, poets, politicians, rappers, writers, columnists, and more. I'm trying to have a bit of a different kind of conversation with these people who so shape our culture, not adversarial or promotional, but deliberately more open and reflective. I'm trying, and very imperfectly, to learn to listen to the wide range of views and experiences that make up each complex and valuable human being, to get to the people behind the positions, the boxes that we try or feel tempted to put people in, no matter how much I may or may not agree with them. In this episode, I spoke to Sam Byers, in the actual flesh, real-life, three-dimensional, with legs, in a lateral flow-tested and COVID-secure manner in the Theos offices, and I cannot tell you what a treat it was. Sam is a novelist and the author of three books, Idiopathy, Perfidious Albion, and most recently, Come Join Our Disease, which the Sunday Times has said confirms him as one of the most accomplished novelists of our generation. We spoke about a really wide range of things, but certainly about his sense that novels should tackle big ideas and not shy away from them, his discomfort with the idea of freedom, and that comes through really strongly in Come Join Our Disease, and our diminishing sense of compassion in society. And I am aware that I mainly rabbited on at him because I felt so strongly that his work is touching on deeply theological themes, even if he might not call them that. And I also am aware, probably broke my own record for very long rambling questions, which he was very gracious about, and I hope he will be too. Please enjoy listening. Sam, we're going to kick off with... I'm just going to throw like a dead cat on the table in some Mm -hmm. senses with a very big word um, about the sacred, what you hold sacred. And in this, I'm not specifically thinking about anything religious. It's very much more a way of getting to our deepest values. Anthropologists like the sense of the sacred because you get a sense of kind of boundaries and trespass and compromise and what societies gather around. We don't have to go near any of that if that's too much. It's just, you might have a hunch of what your deepest principles are. And the clue is when they're pressed on, you feel a bit like, oh, you know, if Mm. someone someone said, I'm going to give you money to stop living by this principle, you would feel a little bit Mm -hmm. uncomfortable about that. Um, I suppose it's an interesting way of um, thinking about the two sides to my life. So uh, I'm obviously a novelist and then... In my day job for nearly 20 years now, I've worked in and around community care, um, almost entirely with vulnerable adults. Um, So I've worked in a care home for people with learning disabilities. I've worked in an old people's home. I've been an agency carer. I've worked for social services and now I work for a charity. Um, And so I suppose the, the first thing that comes to mind is the sort of community care side of my life, which is that I feel very strongly that everyone should have an equal right to a certain quality of life, um, to safety, to help when they need it, that no one should be destitute, 
that no one should be left to manage on their own when they can't manage on their own, that nobody should be choosing between food and rent. You know, I think very basic principles like that, no one should be pressed into destitution and no one should be left to struggle. Um, and, and that, I suppose, is the, the guiding principle of that side of my work. And, and also that people should have a sense of agency and empowerment in their own lives and a sense of independence and should be helped to live the life that they want to live. Um, and so I suppose that's half of my life. And then the other half of my life, I'm a novelist. And I suppose I hold not just literature, but but art to be very sacred. You know, art um, to, to me is, um, if we take away the sort of commercial side of it and the sort of career side of it and the professionalization of it, it is really about people's ability to express themselves and their ability to um, express perhaps things that um, they wouldn't be able to express were it not through a, a creative medium. And I hold that to be very important as well. Um, and so I suppose somewhere, you know, if those two things were a Venn diagram, I suppose somewhere in the middle, there's a sense of um, people's right to be themselves and express themselves um, and be encouraged in that endeavour. Oh, so much I want to pick up on about that, that sense of art separate from career, market, all those things, which obviously is coming through a lot in, in the novel of how much we can uh, get out from the systems by which we have framed our society. And it makes a lot of sense of the early parts of Come Join Our Disease when Maya, who is homeless, um, is reflecting on the depersonalization of many of the spaces by which, in which we try and help people. You know, she talks about lives unraveling in these dingy um, spaces. And uh, it really helps me to understand your firsthand experience, I guess, of, of some of those worlds. Um, Lots to pull on, but first I'm going to try and wind back. One of the things I'm really interested in is how is the stories locating people in their stories, particularly voices in public life who are bringing different perspectives to us, getting a sense of where they've come from and what has influenced them, I think always helps rich understanding, maybe more empathy. Um, and I'm just nosy, so it's always interesting. Um, so I'd love you to paint a bit of a word picture of your childhood. And obviously you can choose what you're you feel comfortable sharing but any particular big ideas religious political philosophical artistic um that you think have formed you um well all of the things i've just described probably have their root in some sense in my childhood um firstly i was quite ill as a child um i i'm not now it was a childhood thing but it often meant that i couldn't go to school and so um i would spend sometimes months at a time at home and um, I think that sort of occasioned a retreat into my own imagination. Um, both my parents studied literature. There were lots of books in the house and they were very much the literature of the generation of people who'd, um, I suppose, been teenagers in the 70s. And so there was lots of Eastern philosophy. There was lots of American literature. There was the Beats. Um, those are all things that I sort of found, you know, on the bookshelves, books about the 60s. Um, and my father um, 
he was a musician in his younger days and then became uh, a teacher. And he, he worked specifically with people with learning disabilities. And for a while, he ran a care home, which, which was live in. So we lived in a flat upstairs and, you know, for a couple of years. And so I suppose those, you know, they're still probably the, the two primary aspects of my life are, um, you know, working with my own solitude, working with my own ideas, working with my own imagination. And then this sort of outward looking aspect, which, you know, values working directly with other people and, you know, the, the value of caring for other people. So I suppose all, all of that was formed in my childhood, really. And it's it's interesting to see that um, I probably haven't drifted very, very far from from those things. Like I'm, you know, in my early 40s now. And um, it's probably only now that I'm able to sort of reflect back and think, oh, well, the seeds of all of those things were sown when I was growing up. I wanted to ask, and this won't come as a surprise, that I, in reading uh, this novel and various essays you've been written recently, have a very strong sense of how theological your work is, which might not be a frame that is you're used to, but was there any religion around in your childhood? The How much was the influence of that kind of Eastern spirituality stuff? Does that word sit well with you or is that a kind of surprising thing for someone to say? Um. I think I've moved more in that direction. And I think come, this book, Come Join Our Disease, is, is like the sort of beginning of moving in that direction. Um, and it's it's obvious that, I mean, the word spirituality is obviously a fairly loose word. And I think it has a lot of unhelpful connotations. But equally, I, I, I don't know what an alternative word would be. We're, we're a bit stuck with it, I think, if we want to talk about a very loose sense of religious um, sentiment, but clearly, you know, I started reading, you know, books about Taoism and, and Buddhism and the East in inverted commas that I found, you know, on my parents' hippie bookshelves, um, very young. And, um, my parents in fact now are both Buddhists, you know, they, I don't think they would have said that years ago when I was young, but in, in later life, that's become much more important to them. And I also have my daily meditation practice um, and it's become more important to me as well. So I suppose, um, again, the, the seeds were sown and those are ideas I've been exploring for a long time. Um, but I probably have started to embrace them in a more conscious way. And I suppose there's also an angle there in that um, all of my work, I suppose, has resolved, revolved around certain kind of social problems and the way I think about these three books is in in the first book, Idiopathy, the characters are sort of, they're completely paralysed by cynicism. You know, they're, they're so cynical that they can't really do or achieve anything or in, in, relate to one another. I think in the second book, Perfidious Albion, there's a sense towards the end that people are moving towards like a position of like possibility, like perhaps the world perhaps we don't have to accept the world as it is. Perhaps we can have some agency in the world and, and do something about changing it. And so with this one, Come Join Our Disease, I knew I wanted to address the topic of freedom and to really think about what it means to live a radical life and to try and live a life outside of capitalism and outside of the, the strictures we all you know, live amidst, even when we think we're free. 
And it seems to me that when you start pressing at that territory, you do have to encounter some sort of spiritual or theological aspect because, you know, my my reading around those ideas of kind of renunciation, for example, the, the history of that isn't just political. It is a, a religious history. You know, um, I read lots of stories about, you know, Tibetan monks who lived in caves and, you know, people who... Um, had like sort of shrugged off the demands of the material world, you know, asceticism, renunciation. Those are, it's hard, I think, to begin to address those topics without some acknowledgement that they are not just political subjects. They are also spiritual and and, and religious subjects. Because when I asked what you hold sacred, I wondered if, uh, depending on what I've been reading of yours, I wondered if you might say freedom. And various people that I've spoken to have said freedom. Mm. The, the people, the things that people hold sacred tend to cluster around sort of relational values, love or kindness mm. or connection. And then there's this set of freedom or free thinking or autonomy or scepticism for some. Um, and then th- those with a more artistic or creative bent often have something in there about expression or creativity or... Mm. Uh, which I like because it maps onto the kind of Thomist idea of, you know, goodness, beauty and truth of, you know, the, the, the very deepest things. But t- talk to me about freedom. In fact, maybe start with what was the thread you were pulling on in Come Join Our Disease about freedom? And perhaps it'd be helpful for the listener if you just do a very potted overview of um, the, the plot. <laughs> um, well, it's a book about... Um, a woman, the narrator Maya, when we first meet her, she's homeless, like you said, and she's kind of, um, she's seized from the encampment she lives on when it's cleared and she's she's offered this um, sort of redemptive opportunity by a, a large tech company, which is that they will offer her somewhere to live and a job and a, a life, in inverted commas, a uh, way back into society, providing she kind of documents her transformation on Instagram so that people can follow her quote unquote journey as she goes from kind of like disheveled homeless person to I assume hugely successful productive member of society glowing and toned and and filtered they send her on wellness retreats and she very quickly starts to chafe against that and starts to feel that actually all of the feelings that led to her sort of dropping out of society in the first place are coming back to her which is this Um, inability to feel a sense of belonging, this inability to see the value in the work that she's doing, this inability really to join what she feels as this um, slightly deadening aspect of adult life. And so she starts to rebel against that by embarking really on a project of letting herself go. Um, You know, no productivity, no health, um, you know, beginning to slide into sort of illness and ugliness. And ultimately she starts inviting other people to kind of join her in this project. And so it raises the question of like a very radical kind of freedom, like a freedom that is beyond all taboos. And I suppose the thread I was pulling at, and, you know, perhaps the reason I don't immediately say that I hold freedom to be sacred is that I think it's a much overused and misunderstood term. And I think when people talk about freedom, what they tend to imagine is just their own um, values and the things they hold to be beautiful and lovely 
expanded out onto a sort of global stage and everyone else just just sort of gets along with them and they think well that'd be amazing we'd all, you know we'd all be free but it's really interesting when people encounter other people's freedom they feel very tense you know and they, they feel like that's not something they want to be around so you know if you spend any time working with people who perhaps have very different sense of boundaries and norms as mainstream society you quickly realize that people are very uncomfortable with freedom they might like it as an idea but as soon as someone's wandering around in the street shouting they're not very happy about the concept of freedom at all and i think the problem is we're very keen on the idea of freedom but we're still so bound up in the idea of individuality that we're not able to reconcile the ways in which our freedoms, our individual freedoms impact on each other and affect each other's freedoms. And so I'm, I'm suspicious of how helpful a term freedom is, to be honest. Yeah. And that really, that really comes through in the story. This, and I have to say that the, all, lots of the reviews are about the kind of back third where mm. Maya has really, you know, there's a, there's a lot of feces. There's a lot of mm. urine. It's not an easy read. It's very uncomfortable. And I'll be honest, I sort of read that slightly with the book, like, <laughs> at a distance. You, I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah. Much. But actually, I'm not particularly squeamish. So even though it wasn't, like, lovely, I found the first half of the book much, much more disturbing. Mm. Much, much more chilling because of the way it puts its finger on the way the market has encroached on every area of our life. And honestly, the, it, from everything from the kind of charity as PR exercise to work as not just, you know, manual labor or craft, but this whole person project of continual optimization, but not just continual optimization, performative continual optimization, that to be a success, to be seen as a whole person or a real person in some ways involves this exhausting, relentless upwards trajectory towards um, self-creation. And it, you know, there's so much of that first bit of the book is, is underlined mm -hmm. um, because of the the way it helped, it helped me do the thing that great novels most often do for me, which is that clarifying moment of seeing things I already could see, but couldn't really see. Mm -hmm. For me, that one thing that my Christianity has always done, and one thing, one, one of the many reasons why I'm a Christian is I feel, and Michael Sandel talks about this a lot and various other philosophers, that that particular way of looking at the world, this particular understanding of human value, of made in the image of God, is one of the few robust bulwarks I know against that. Mm -hmm. Because it says, no. <laughs> no, your value is not dependent on your clicks or your likes or your money or your ownership. Mm -hmm. uh, and those who, as often happens in the book, dehumanize others, use others as a means to an end, that's anathema. That's like actively offensive to God. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I as a Christian and many others don't know how to necessarily live that out. But again, there's a theology of sin and brokenness, which is another thing that comes out. Um, 
that's an incredibly long way to say, as you were writing this, what was your own, how do you deal with that discomfort of, as an author who needs to sell books Mm. and as a person who needs to communicate with friends, how do you navigate where we are in this system that, yes, has lots of benefits and has built lots of prosperity and there's lots of good things we can say about it, but at a deep level, I think we're both troubled by. Yeah, I I, I feel... um... I mean, in the sense that the word I would use, um, you know, when you read a lot of um, like uh, particularly Tibetan Buddhist texts, um, you know, the, the word they often use to describe like samsara, like the the, the 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 sort of delusional world we live in, is that you know you have to develop a level of disgust with it, you know, which which I think is a really interesting word, and I think I'm I'm approaching being able to use the word disgust about, you know, many aspects of the modern world we we live in. Like, I, I feel disgusted about exactly that encroachment that you're describing. I feel disgusted at the way we treat people and the kind of, the way that the, the, the society we live in functions really, it exists because of inequality. You know, inequality isn't a sort of accident or byproduct of the system. The system we live in needs inequality in order to function properly. And I think as soon as you're conscious of that, everything starts to feel very, very uncomfortable. And one of the things that was on my mind as I read the book, I don't don't know if you've read Irving Goffman's Asylums, really sort of interesting, I think 60s study of life in what would then have been called an asylum. And one of the ideas he had was this idea of the total institution that, you know, there's a certain kind of institution that um, when you move into that institution, like an asylum or a prison, it takes over every aspect of your of your life. You know, you eat there, you sleep there, you work there. It is the total institution. And my feeling is that society has progressively become the total institution and that it's harder and harder and harder to hold on to aspects of your life that exist free of that institution or um, unaffected by that institution. And I think you can see that most strongly if you spend any time with someone who's navigating the benefit system or the asylum system. You know, if you think about something like the hostile environment, you really start to see that total institution swing into operation. There is nothing you can do that is outside that system. There is nowhere you can go. There is nothing you can access that does not involve interfacing with that system on a sort of minute by minute basis. And I suppose that brings us back to the idea of freedom, because I feel like often when people deploy the word freedom, they're just imagining a slightly better life within the system that we that we have. And I don't think I any longer believe that that means anything. You know, I think we could all imagine for ourselves a slightly better version of this life. But unfortunately, that, that will always fail the, vo- the most vulnerable members of our society. So it will always depend on other people not having as much or other people suffering or... Quite what you do with that knowledge, I think, is a very complicated question. You know, much as I feel uncomfortable, much as I feel that sense of disgust at the world we live in, nor am I flippant about how difficult it would be 
to leave it and what that would really, really mean. Mm-hmm. It, you know, and that's that's where Maya is heading in in the book. And I think that's what she starts to understand is that it's not just about, you know, bringing down the structures around you. It's about bringing down the structures within you. And that really is like the job of a lifetime. And I don't think it's a particularly sort of, it's not like you're just going to sort of like skip into a field and feel really free and it's going to be amazing. The sun is shining. I think it'd be incredibly painful. You know, I think it'd be a very harrowing Mm. experience. And again, that's reflected in, you know, the history of lots of religious literature, you know, like uh, prophets and saints and, you know, like tended not to have a very good time of it. It's not, it's not a great way of life. <laughs> it's very painful. Yeah, standard of living wise. There's definitely I've, I've, an amazing Christian friend of mine talks about being like actively downwardly mobile as the Christian path. Mm. Genuinely, this book and your essays I felt like they are the, one of the richest theological conversation partners in my brain I've had for a while. And it's because you seem to be coming right up against so many of the experiences of being human and so many of those existential questions that I find, if not like simply answered and tied up with a bowl, bow, certainly kind of satisfyingly tackled it basically made me feel massively more Christ- more more Christian or more committed, which was That's not what I was expecting when I picked it up, given it's got a cover of like lots of dismembered dolls' heads. Like mm. it's, not, <laughs> it's not it's not your classic uh, theology and spirituality like uplifting thing. And I think part of it is this theme about freedom because the freedom is freedom is well, there's various big themes of the Bible, but particularly the New Testament and particularly the New Testament letters, Paul in particular, Mm. very, very interested in freedom. You know, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not let yourself be yoked again into slavery. And then this thing which kept coming up as I was reading, this sense that individual freedom isn't isn't a thing, Mm. (laughs) isn't actually possible. And this sense of it's kind of, you know, in the, light, the Enlightenment brought us lots of good things, right? And lots of people would say that the idea of the individual is came out of the Protestant Reformation. So you can't put these things as like religious and secular boxes. But certainly, like the self-expressive, rational individual as our primary anthropology is, is very latent, I think, in secular consumer culture mm. and deeply anti-religious, I gather, more broadly, but certainly anti-Christian in the sense that we're not really individuals in a Christian anthropology. We are persons in relationship because we're made in the image of God who is relationship. And this is where the Trinity, which is obviously like on one level makes no sense at all. And on another level makes like deep narrative sense that if we're made in an image of God who is relationship, who is, and there's two heresies. One is that God, there are three gods and one is that there is only one person within God because the idea of the Trinity is that God is relationship. God is literally love within themselves, himself, herself, they self. Um, and because of our reflection of that, we cannot be whole. We cannot be human. We cannot be, in some senses, fully alive outside relationship, both with God and with other people. And so this there's a lot in the letters about basically 
freedom in the sense that this kind of like fully liberated individual freedom it's just not it's a it's a it's, it's a chimera it's it, it, it's an idol you can't have that you can either be a slave to yourself to the worth part of yourself in theological language to the flesh to your ego to your fragility to your craving to your you know lust for all these things that we know are bad for ourselves or you can be slave to god who in who kind of loves you and in that relationship there is real freedom there is real liberty um so it just yeah it basically i wanted to say i keep pulling at these threads because they're really important they're really deeply important but also circle back round to your role as a novelist and how difficult it is to talk about some of these deep things, how difficult it is for people of faith like me to talk about God, to talk about the fact mm. that we do really believe in God. It's not just like a useful social fiction. Um, but also for you to move through that trajectory you set out in your book of cynicism to where do you go with these questions and how do we hold space in public to ask them deeply, not in short form, not 140 characters, you know, not with cynicism, but with openness. Is that part of what you're trying to do? Help me understand what you're trying to do as a novelist. Someone said of this book um, on Twitter, I think it was, I thought it was a really good comment, that it, it's willing to risk the ridiculous. And I think realistically, not just as a novelist, but as a, as, as a musician, an artist of any kind in Britain, if you say, I'm going for it, I'm going for the big questions, you you just have to accept that some people are going to say, well, you know, this is this is sort of arrogant or it's pretentious or it's just ridiculous or it's been embarrassing. It's been embarrassing that someone's like, they want to write a novel that, that's like, what you know, what is the meaning of life? What is, what is death? What is, you know? Um, and I think there's this really strange notion, particularly when we talk about British fiction, that it should be very subtle all the time and that novel, novels should really be um, constantly about what is unsaid. And that there must be lots of novels about people um, just sort of making tea and being very quiet, but implying a lot through the sort of tenseness of their nervous gestures. And I'm not averse to reading that, but I don't think it holds true that there's equally that, that there's no place for big ideas. And, and again, I think you can look to literature and translation for, um, you know, a very different approach to politics, philosophy. You know, the, the European novel has no problem engaging with, with philosophy. Um, and... I think that sort of holds true for, you know, theological questions as well. I think they've been pressed into the realm of like big ideas where it's a bit like if you can't find a way to talk about them in really tangible, material, smaller terms, don't bother because it will just be too airy and it will be too sort of artsy-fartsy and it would just be too sort of pie in the sky and it won't mean anything to anyone. Um, but I think I would like to make quite a sort of strong case for the abstract and for the big and for the stuff that can't be kind of pinned down. I don't personally feel any problem with saying, well, what if, you know, what if this, what if, what if that, and, and, and sort of thinking big and, and thinking freely. And I think the injunction to continually kind of dial your thoughts down to the immediate, the proximate, the small, the specific, totally is i i find it as a, a a bit of a kind of repressive injunction to be honest and i think if you always do that 
how are we going to imagine our way out of what we have? You know, how are we going to imagine our way into something bigger? And I, I think that brings up another question of who gets to imagine? Who gets to have big ideas? Who gets to have big thoughts? And my feeling is that everyone should have big thoughts. Everyone should ask themselves these questions. It's not my... I just happen to record mine because I'm a novelist. But I, and I would also say I think everyone is asking themselves these questions. Um, I, I don't think there's anyone who at some point in their life, you know, hasn't asked themselves difficult questions about the meaning of their life, particularly as we, we all have to encounter death, we all have to encounter grief. I mean, if you look at the last year, the scale of grief, like the scale of sort of collective mourning, means inevitably that I think people are sitting at home asking themselves some very, very complicated questions. And I think, you know, if we're talking about the role of the artist or the role of the novelist, it, it's in some senses to to, resist, to risk ridicule, isn't it? It's to say, well, I'm, I'm going in there, you know, um, and, you know, it might not work. It might not, it might not come good. It, it might be a bit of a mess. It might be a bit sort of pretentious it, you know it might be it might bite off more than it can chew I mean that that's the sort of classic phrase used when someone's tried to do something big and I always feel like yeah go for it yeah. I mean do bite off more than you can chew I mean because that's how we're all going to sort of get there together I just want to kind of chew on what you've said that actually sometimes the place for big ideas should be in art and we should be less um worried about it mm. With that sense of kind of vocation or responsibility or curiosity, you know, however you want to frame it, how do you how do you tend to your internal world? Because it's sometimes being the critic or the analyst or the person who sees things that are distressing mm. must be a hard place to live. You know, how do you maintain hopefulness or a sense of redemption or, or, or do you? You can be honest about that if you don't. Um, I suppose, um, well... You know, um, to, to be very sort of practical about it, you know, meditation has become more and more important to me. So, you know, I meditate in the morning, and I, I meditate in the evening, and I think that helps me um, keep things in perspective. Um, and I, I feel strongly when I'm working, perhaps more so than ever, that there is the world of the book. And, you know, I spend time in that world and I like to feel very immersed in that world and that can become very sort of all-consuming. But I also feel that there is a world I can return to. You know, I don't feel... Um, and that's often in very simple things, you know, like it might be the garden, or I might be going for a run or, you know, and I, I think there's something there about sort of returning to like the body, to, to sort of one's literal bodily, physical presence in, in the world is, is really useful. Um, I, th I think it can be dangerous to kind of depart entirely into that sort of imaginal space, either because um, it becomes its own kind of not particularly helpful renunciation where you feel like, well, um, hey-ho, the world's a very difficult place. I'm just going to like live in this imaginative realm. You know, I, I don't think that's particularly defensible position at least when your imaginative realm is not at least in this case not yeah, not a I particularly mean, restful place no, either that's that's no good either I, I mean um but equally I suppose I feel like um 
again, like I don't feel as a novelist, I am accessing anything that other people can't access and aren't accessing on a daily basis. Like I, I feel our imaginations are very important. I, f- I feel our inner lives are very important. And while it's the novelist's job to, to sort of bring something back from that experience, I also feel that everyone is accessing their internal spaces all the time as a way of managing their life and, um, you know, managing the world that we have to live in, managing stress, you know, managing fear, um, whatever. And, and if anything, I feel like um, the the sort of social injunction should be that we all have more time to do that. You know, I, I think it becomes ever more difficult as, as people are they're working more hours there's all this stuff about like even when you're not working you should be somehow preparing for work like getting enough rest or doing some exercises that make you super productive or like watching something or you know and um I, I think it's you know it's become very difficult for people actually just to kind of spend time with themselves um and I suppose I would encourage anyone like not to not to fear that experience um, and I suppose books, you know, I do have some sense of, you know, I'm a bit suspicious of some of the grand claims that are made for books sometimes that they sort of like, your reading makes you a better person or like reading gives you loads of empathy or you know, like, I think it's like sort of demonstrably untrue, you know. Um, but I do think reading is perhaps a way of being in solitude without experiencing solitude too forcefully you know it gives you something to do in solitude it's hard to read collectively it's not a it's not kind of social experience and so I think there is some value in that that like reading is perhaps a way of accessing some of that inner space in a slightly kind of mediated way you know most people probably can't just sit down and be like okay I'm going to be with myself for a couple of hours and not (laughs) not do anything that's very difficult so I think reading is quite a nice space into that sort of like being with oneself um and so yeah I, I I suppose I have a knowledge as a novelist that I'm probably engaging with people when they're at their quietest and most alone and most receptive and so it's important that I take that seriously I suppose. I often ask guests what they've learned about having conversations across divides um I don't exactly know how I define what divides if any you sit on and maybe that's something about the capaciousness of of narrative because it feels like you're not in some ways you're not trying to make an argument in the book so much as raise a lot of questions. So instead, I'm going to ask if you had one sense of what might make these public spaces, these public conversations healthier, you know, this space that May is trying to navigate, Mm. that we as individuals could adopt rather than, you know, setting up a dirty protest in an industrial state or becoming a nun. Mm. Are Are there any steps that you either take or think maybe you'd like to try that we could all have a go at? that might humanise or hold back these the worst tendencies of the systems that we've created? Um, I think two things. I think, you know, um, I feel like compassion is a word people feel a bit uncomfortable with and a bit suspicious of because it feels very, um, it always feels a bit like pious or a bit like you're saying, um, 
I'm, you know, I'm a very compassionate person or, you know, my understanding of compassion is that it, you know, it's, it's a, like a goal for all of us. It's something we all struggle with. You know, it's not like, I'm not saying like, I just walk around feeling very compassionate towards like all the people who are in my way and making my day difficult. Like that's not true. Um, but I, I feel like it's an important thing to try and hold in view. And I feel like um, somewhere along the line, particularly when it comes to designing systems, perhaps because of cuts, perhaps because of resource issues, but also I think because of cultural ideas about helping people and being there to help people. The idea of compassion has drained away. So, you know, if you were homeless and you were going to the council to make a homeless application, I think you should have a reasonable expectation that you would be treated with some compassion. And I think people worry that sounds patronising, like you might be patronising someone by being compassionate towards them. But it just means understanding that someone is having a hard time and that you are there to help them. And actually what people experience is a whole load of kind of bureaucratic abuse and unpleasantness. And so I think we've all got a lot of work to do in terms of um, how we try and bring compassion to our interactions with with other people. And that's very challenging across social media and, you know, think pieces and, you know, where the whole kind of tone is, um, you know, really you want to be winning. You really want to be sort of like beating the other person or like you know, dehumanising them in some way. But the other thing I would say is I'm very interested in anger and when I hear people who are characterising contemporary conversation, the, the problem they seem to have is that, it, that it's, quote unquote, too angry. Like it's very angry. Everyone's very angry all the time and you can't say anything nowadays without people getting angry. And if you tweet something, people will shout at you. And their solution often seems to be that everyone should be less angry. If we could all just be less angry, you know, the conversation would be much better quality. But my question is, why are we so concerned about anger? Like, why are we so frightened of anger? And why are we so reactive towards it? And I think there's another way of thinking about, like, contemporary debate, which is that we're in a lot of, we're in a lot of trouble. Like, we're in a lot of trouble as a, as a society. You know, we are facing climate catastrophe. There is an appalling level of poverty. People having experiences of injustice and violence and, you know, prejudice, they're going to be angry. Like, they have absolutely every right to be angry. And telling people not to be angry can itself be extremely oppressive. It can be a way of kind of closing the conversation down. And it's also pointless. You can't tell someone who is angry not to be angry. It's just going to make them really angry. So you, I think there's something really interesting in whether or not we could... Perhaps a better way forward might be to be more comfortable with anger. Yeah. Sam Byers, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. 
The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.